Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Will Foxley. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Christine. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. And I'm Will Foxley, a tech reporter at Coindesk. Today, we're going to be talking about Ethereum 2.0 slashing events and what developers have learned about them in the last two months. Our guest for today is Raul Jordan, co-developer at Prismatic Labs. Prismatic Labs is the development group responsible for building and maintaining the most popular ETH2 client, Prism. Thanks for being here today, Raul. Thank you. Thank you both for inviting. Uh, yeah, happy to be on the show. So before we jump into this very exciting topic of slashing and validators losing their rewards and being booted off the network, I do want to ask you, Raul, about your thoughts on just how popular Prism has become as an Ethereum 2.0 client. Some estimations say that half of all Ethereum 2.0 validators are downloading and running Prism software. So when you were building Prism, I mean, did you intend for it to become the most, like the go-to Ethereum 2.0 client for users? And what do you think so, so far of how much attention it's getting and how much more popular it is than, than the other client teams? Sure. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. So I just want to clarify something. So it's really difficult to estimate precisely like who is using what, what implementation, because, you know, the network is is uh, pretty decentralized. There's people running it in different parts of the world. What you can see, you can basically check, you know, IP addresses and you can kind of roughly map that to locations. So you can kind of figure out that like, okay, like there's hundreds of nodes in like, you know, in, in the East Coast or something like that. And you can tell that from some information, you can kind of predict that they're using Prism, Lighthouse, et cetera. However, uh, you can't really predict how many validators are using Prism because a single node could have, could be running maybe 20 validators or 100 validators, actually like validator private keys and public keys. So it's a little bit harder to gauge that number in particular. Uh, but yes, there have been multiple network analyses and it seems like Prism ha has been over 50% in a lot of these. Um, indeed, it is a double-edged sword. You know, I think the other two clients have done an amazing job in terms of uh, stability, like growth. And uh, when you have a lot of people using uh, your implementation, there's bound to be a lot more risks, right? Like basically, if there's a bug in our implementation, then that could bring down a big portion of the nodes and that could cause some unintended side effects. And yes, I mean, since the beginning, we were always aiming to be the kind of go-to uh, like client for the average staker uh, in the sense that we want to focus a lot on documentation, on uh, simplicity of like how you can run it. Basically, we provide, you know, we allow you to run it on all sorts of different operating systems and devices. So you, you can run on Windows. We provide like uh, compiled binaries for that. So we try to make the experience easy for people and we're always accessible. We have a Discord community of like 10,000 uh, people and stakers from all backgrounds. And that's kind of what we set out to do. We continue doing that today. Yeah. So we had Danny Ryan on the podcast a week ago, maybe it's two weeks ago now. We were talking about like different clients and why there's such a leaning towards uh, Prism in the community. And just from myself going around Discord and then looking at docs online, Prismatic Labs just seems to have put forward like a really good marketing pitch. 
as much as it is just like free software, it's really easy to like find you guys and use your stuff compared to some of the other clients. Um, and like you said, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I'm interested though, to hear what you think about like the long-term play is for Prism, like where are you guys trying to go with this? You have 10,000 people in your Discord, which is huge. Um, I haven't heard of another Discord server that big for Ethereum besides maybe like EatStaker, the ETH Research Discord. So how do you incentivize people to move to different clients? Is, are you guys even interested in that? Or are you okay with just kind of keeping it the status quo? Are you guys working actively with other clients to get them to kind of pick up on some of the, the sweet spots you guys have kind of figured out? Yeah, I do think that there's a fair bit of collaboration, especially around standardization. So like make sure that all the clients implement certain features in the right way and stuff like that. But to be honest, like it's in our best interest to continue pushing people to use Prism, right? I mean, it's a software that we built and the best we can do is just keep working hard and then, you know, expect that everyone else is also working as hard to, to build great software. Uh, and, I, you know, of course they are. So yeah, no, we, we are not encouraging our users to move clients, right? We want them to use our software. So you kind of have this problem where like, you know, it's bad if the network uses every single one uses one software, but as a team, we want to encourage people to use what we built. That's kind of where we are. I guess our, our long-term plan is, you know, we want to always be at the forefront of, of kind of Ethereum development, in particular at the layer one level. So the Go Ethereum project in the beginning was first implementation, then you had Parity, you had others, and Parity was eating up a lot of their market share. And now today, like Go Ethereum is, you know, the most, I guess, actively maintained, like most popular and, and biggest implementation. So we want to emulate their success. We want to keep being a very solid choice for stakers and keep improving, keep becoming faster, like safer, more feature rich. When somebody is running Ethereum in the future, we envision that they are running Prism. That's what we're thinking about. Yes, it is difficult to, to figure out how to balance that, right? I think that as stakers make more informed decisions about the client choices and they can, you know, there will likely be a little bit more of a balance, but who knows? And speaking of switching clients, I mean, there is a danger if you're running one implementation and going to run a different implementation that you don't get slashed, which is precisely the main topic of what we wanted to discuss in this podcast episode. And as of this recording, we've got 132 validators in total that have been slashed on Ethereum 2.0. And Raul, you had a really, really great blog post that you published on Medium called ETH 2.0 slashing prevention tips, which I just have so many questions about. And we're definitely going to link that blog post in today's show notes. First question for you on this topic of validator slashings. I can see on block explorers that when a validator gets slashed, there's another validator that actually has to kind of rat you out. Can you go over again what that process of getting slashed looks like, how a validator reports someone on the network, and then how they effectively kind of get booted off of the network and aren't able to start earning rewards again? They're effectively kind of like blacklisted? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that slashings are caught, if you do something malicious that is basically trying to rewrite the history of the chain in a way, or is trying to like vote on conflicting things like these are things that should not be allowed without a penalty if people could do this sort of things without a penalty so say like i produce a block and then i produce another block that is a little bit different that should not be allowed or like i vote that this block is the right block head of the chain and i also vote that this other one is the head of the chain at the same time like that sort of conflicting activity should be punished right like if a malicious actor could do that for cheap 
then it would be very easy to kind of attack the network. So basically there's this software called Slasher that is uh, running on the network. There's a few of these running on the network. And the beauty is that you only really need one of them in the world to be running, uh, to be running honestly. And Slasher is basically the police of the network. So it, it watches every single thing that happens and tries to understand like, okay, like this validator um, is trying to do this malicious activity. Like, hey, he reports that to the network. And then the first validator that, that sees that proof that like, okay, this person did something malicious can put that into a block. And by doing so, they get what's called the whistleblower reward. So they earn a little bit of a reward for reporting that the validators that are meant to be slashed. And then once that block makes it into the chain, and if it's valid, then uh, the validators that were involved get a part of their deposit basically cut, and uh, they start leaking funds until they can get forcefully ejected after a certain period of time. And this penalty ranges from a relatively small amount in phase zero launch, because we know that you know, it's a new network, like we, wanna, we don't want to scare people too much with slashing. It can go all the way to like your entire balance. If like there's a massive network slashing and you're part of that group that is trying to mount that crazy attack on the network, right? So we haven't seen a penalty that large yet, of course. And yes, you know, basically the whistleblower reward is not meant to be, you know, super big, right? Like it's not meant to be really profitable to want to slash other people. It's meant as a nice kind of little incentive for people to pack slashings into blocks. And yes, we have had a fair bit of slashing so far. And it does seem like the majority of those slashings have been by people who have unintentionally done something to trigger the slashing software, like the most recent example being stake. Staking as a service provider, they are running a bunch of validators and 75 of those validators got slashed because I think they were running two implementations of their software, but it, it seemed like, you know, somebody who's an expert that they're receiving other, other users' funds and staking for these people on the Ethereum 2.0 work. I mean, even they were subject to such harsh penalties. Uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts on just the number of people on the network that have been slashed, not because they were trying to launch an attack on the network, but because of you know, them upgrading, trying to do something different, trying to maximize their rewards. Tell me a little bit about those kind of cases that you've been seeing on the network where people are being unintentionally, unknowingly slashed. Yeah, so slashing, you know, I want to clarify that it was originally designed as a way to deter uh, attacks on the network. The problem is that a lot of the times it's impossible for the network, for like, you know, the protocol to know if you're being malicious or if you just did something, like you just set something up incorrectly, right? Very common types of slashings where you run a validator, you know, maybe at home, and then you run another one maybe in another computer at home uh, or in a cloud provider at the same time. And what happens is that, you know, your validator, it's going to be assigned to produce a block, let's say at like 6 p.m. And then uh, your two validators try to produce a, a block at the same time. And maybe the data inside that block could be different. And uh, that counts as a malicious action, right? And the reason this happens to people is because a lot of people try to get really clever with like their staking setups. They're like, oh, I need zero downtime. Like I cannot afford like, you know, having my software down for a second. So they try setups where like, if one computer goes down, then the other one goes up and starts validating, right? This is super dangerous because, you know, what if like your other computer thought that your first one was down, but it was not actually down and then you, you get slashed, right? A lot of stakers at home try to go for these really complicated setups. And I mean, to be honest, they are fairly sophisticated. Like they, they know what they're doing, right? There's always room for something to go wrong. Moreover, these uh, staking providers, of course, they, a lot of them want to 
boast about high uptime, like, oh, like, you know, our validators are always profitable, like we're, we're always online. And to do this, they end up over-engineering and making things a lot more complicated than they need to be. And to be honest, like the downtime in these two is really not gonna hurt you, right? So you can actually be, you can actually be online for two thirds of the time throughout any given time span and still be profitable. So like, you know, across the entire span of a year, if you're online for only two thirds of the year, like you're still, you're still profitable as a validator. So why do this, right? Um, like the risk is not, is, is not worth it. Uh, basically, if you get slashed, you're going you're gonna to leak some funds, you're going to get ejected, and then your Ether is locked in there, not earning anything until you can withdraw in the future. So that's kind of what's been happening. It's really unfortunate, you know, and I understand where these staking providers are coming from. They want to build really robust, like cloud staking solutions, but in doing so, making things complicated ends up kind of uh, biting them later. Yeah, I think we're going to keep going with the staking. I have a question about the funds being locked up. I know when the Beacon Chain kind of launched in December, there was like some pushback from people who had not been paying attention to the design of the Beacon Chain. And they're like, oh, wait, my funds are going to be locked if I'm slashed. Can we fix that? Can we change that? And obviously, that's been the design roadmap for quite a while. But I'm wondering if there's been any updates because there was some talk about creating some sort of early queue for people who have been slashed and also for people just to get out earlier, even if they haven't been slashed. So has there been any design work in, from the PRISM team or from the ETH R&D team? In terms of things you can do to help people that are already slashed, there isn't really much you can do. Like once you are slashed, like you, you know, <laughs> so it, sad. it kind of really sucks. Like you're, you're just stuck until, uh, until you can exit. Right? I mean, yeah, maybe like, you know, withdrawals could be given earlier to people that were slashed. I mean, sure, that's nice, I guess. But the problem is that there might be a lot of people withdrawing and you, you don't want to get the queue to get too long. And these people have been waiting for a long time. Better give them a, a chance early. So maybe that could be a thing. But yeah, unfortunately, like it's, it's irreversible and that's, that's by design. So in terms of other things, I guess that the best you can do is really preventing it, like educating people about it, understanding that, like, you know, keep it simple. Like my validator has downtime like almost every day it doesn't matter. It's still profitable, right? You know, I wish I had more time to dedicate to keeping it up 24-7, but I want to keep it simple. Uh, I don't run any failover scenarios or any crazy uh, sophisticated infra at home, you know? So I think that just having more education about it and the risks is really important. And just like there were those uh, slashings by, by the staking providers, there's also one-off people that like, you know, like, oh no, I was, I was migrating computers and I didn't realize my other one was still on and such. And so it happens. And I think we just need more education about the matter. Yeah. Speaking of one of the keys to educating people a little bit more. So I know that the two most common reasons for slashing is, is something called the attestation rule offense and the proposal rule offense. So correct me if I'm wrong, Raul, but these are when you're posing two different blocks at the same time. Or you, if you're as a validator, you're given the responsibility to attest to data in a certain block, but then you attest to it, to two different blocks, basically more than you're supposed to as a validator. Those are the two most common reasons for slashing right now that I can see on the network. But are there any other reasons for slashing that we haven't yet seen on Ethereum 2.0, but that developers are kind of waiting for to happen? Seeing as phase zero is a lot of just kind of like observing how the network is growing, observing how this whole system of validation, proof of stake is working for Ethereum. Are there other reasons for slashing that are perhaps more high stakes, more hurtful for the network that you do anticipate might come at one point down the line, but that we haven't actually seen quite yet? 
Sure. So there are three formal slashing conditions that are existing today. And there are more than that. So I'll name the three of them. So like you said, that's correct. Like, so proposing uh, two conflicting blocks means that like, you know, I produce two blocks at the same time. They're not the same. Like, what are you doing, right? Like it, you're, you're trying to trick us or do something weird. If we were to allow this to go through, then anyone can do this without any cost. And you can create like thousands of like crazy forking in the network and it's not good for anyone. The second one you mentioned is also right, which is, yeah, like, you know, you, you vote on two conflicting blocks. Like it's like, I vote for this block and this block. It's like, you know, also like, what are you doing? You're trying to trick us. It's, it's not, not right. And the third one, which is a lot more nuanced and has happened actually to a lot of validators is something called surround voting. So without getting into much of the detail, what this means is that you're basically trying to rewrite the chain history. So for example, every six or so minutes, validator votes are tallied up. And if two thirds of the validators agree on for a certain, a certain amount of checkpoints, then we can consider the chain finalized. So if two thirds validators vote on a checkpoint every six minutes, we call that justification. And then if that happens two times in a row, that's called finality. That's a really good thing. You know, that's like, you know, we have a lot of consensus on what the chain is, right? If a validator is voting and they say that like, hey, look, I think that the last six minutes, the chain is justified. And then the next time they vote, they're like, actually, I don't think it was justified. Like, I think it was in the past. It's like, you're trying to tell us that like, the chain didn't reach two-thirds consensus in the last six minutes, and you're contradicting yourself. You know, you're trying to rewrite history in a way. You're trying to revert, you know, the checkpoint that two-thirds of people agreed upon. So without going into too much detail, that's basically the third slashing condition. And this one, you know, will not really happen to you normally if you're like, for example, running at home. Another common example of how these slashing conditions can happen is maybe if your computer's clock gets really screwed up. Maybe you change your time zone or something or clock just goes way off and it thinks it's like six hours into the future. You can create like a double vote or a double proposal or something like that. However, Prism software and, and other ETH2 clients have built in protection for this sort of stuff. Um, surround voting. The way this can happen to you accidentally is if basically you have a failover beacon node. So you have a separate node and that node is on some fork. So it's not on the right chain, right? And on this other chain, the last six minutes, the chain did not reach two-thirds consensus. And then, uh, and then you produce a, a vote that says that's the case, and then you can get slashed. This has happened to staking providers indeed when they have complicated beacon node validator failover setups, and you know, they move keys around, and maybe one node is on a fork or not. So it does not typically happen to like, stakers at home, and uh, that's a very serious offense. You're telling me that like, the chain should not have consensus, and previously you told me that it that's kind of the third offense. In terms of future offenses, once sharding and shards come into place, yes, there will be a few more slashable offenses. Like for example, like no conflicting shard blocks as well, but they're very similar. They're like trying to prevent evil actions basically. Interesting. Thanks for that background. I kind of want to go a little bit deeper and look at Casper itself. And I think you'd be a pretty reasonable person to ask some questions about that. So for our listeners, Casper is the consensus mechanism behind the beacon chain. And it's proof of stake. Uh, and it just uses some interesting ways and rules to create consensus on the network without mining. So can you dive into that for us here? Like, how does Casper work? How has it changed over the years of our implementation with the research team? And how does it look on a client level for Prism? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I guess Casper proof of stake is just a high level. Like the components of it are that 
you know, you have a proof of stake blockchain that works on the basis of uh, time, for example. So like validators are assigned to produce blocks and vote on other blocks and at certain checkpoints called epochs, those votes are tallied up. And then, uh, you know, if two thirds consensus is reached, then like I said, if, if that happens once, we call that justification. If that happens twice, that's called uh, finality. So you can never revert the chain past the point of finality. So for example, if there's a, you know, some crazy attack or something crazy, like the chain, like it's impossible for it to revert past the finalized checkpoint. Unlike in, you know, in Bitcoin or proof of work and or Ethereum 1.0, right? Like if you have enough uh, hash power, you could technically revert as much as you want, right? In this case, like even as much as you tried, as much money as you had, you cannot revert the point of finality. And uh, I guess like Casper is, is the name of this, this mechanism that allows for having strong consensus on a time basis for a system of validators. I mean, it's been in different iterations throughout the years. Like the original proof of stake uh, approach for Ethereum was there's going to be a smart contract on ETH1 and it's going to manage validators and it's all going to happen on ETH1 and it's going to be really cool. Well, it wasn't going to work because it was a thousand ETH or more to stake, um, you know, and it's, a, it's really, it, it would lead to a lot of stake centralization and it's really expensive to do so. Uh, there were multiple iterations and the latest one obviously has been ETH2, which is a, a separate blockchain that is proof of stake by default. You know, there's no smart contract that runs this thing. It's, it's on the chain natively. So that's the latest iteration. Moving forward, I mean, Casper, I guess the general idea is still at the core and will be at the core of how Ethereum works for, for the future. And that's the mechanism powering proof of stake today. And speaking of that mechanism in a little bit more detail, I mean, so I know that we've been talking a lot about slashing, but validators can also just be penalized, but not necessarily like booted out from the network. Can you talk a little bit about the difference again between getting a penalty when you're validating versus getting totally slashed? Yeah, totally. So this, these penalties are called inactivity, inactivity leaks. Mm. If you're offline, meaning that like you, you get assigned to produce a block at 6 p.m. and you don't do anything or uh, you're assigned to vote, you know, and validators approximately are assigned to do something every six minutes. Uh, every six minutes, you get new assignments, right? So you always should be online, at least, you know, the majority of the time, right? Um, if you don't do that, you'll start losing a little bit of your rewards. So, and then as time goes on, the longer you're offline, your penalty will be, uh, will be bigger. So, you know, if you're offline for a super long time, like, like months, you know, like you're going to have a, a fairly large leak. And what's going to happen is that once you reach a 16 ETH as your balance, um, as your, it's called an effective balance, you're going to be ejected forcefully from the network, right? So, because, you know, it's like these people are clogging up uh, the, the chain. They're not doing anything, not participating in consensus. And there's other people that want to participate. So, yeah, granted, the penalties are not high, right? So, like, as long as you are online two-thirds of the time, you will make money consistently. So, you know, take a month, right? All you need to do is be online for two-thirds of that month, and then you'll do fine. They're really not that big and not worth making, you know, creating complicated setups just to get around that uh, inactivity leak. Yeah, one thing that's kind of interesting to me lately uh, as Ethereum mining fees are really shooting up, is that there's a, a good comparison, I should say, between who's mining Ethereum right now and who would be validating ETH2. And so for Ethereum chain right now, of course, we have miners and they're mostly GPU miners, which is like graphics cards kind of stuff you can use for like video games or high-speed computers. And they don't cost necessarily a ton, depending on what you do uh, for your setup. In the same way that setting up a validator I think it's under two grand if you really like wanted to make it fancy. I think you could get bit up to that high, but you could probably even do it for a lot cheaper than that. 
I know our setup was probably around that, right, Christine? You know, remember off your head. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was under two grand. So there's an interesting, I don't know exactly how to put it. The people who are going to validate ETH2 are often the same kind of class of people who would be mining Ethereum right now. At the same time, though, there's a lot of Ethereum miners who are not happy with a lot of the developments in Ethereum. So I'm wondering from a client's perspective, how do you reach out to the community, especially like the mining community, and get them involved with validation? One example, recently at uh, this weekend, ETH Denver, F2 Pool, gave a pro speech in front of the Ethereum virtual crowd there for EIP 1559, uh, which is not ETH2 itself, but it is like a huge change for how mining works. And ETH2 is an even bigger change. So how do you get mining pools involved and how do you get miners on board for ETH2? Yeah, definitely. I will refrain from EIP conversation just because I don't know enough about it. If I were more knowledgeable, I could have a better opinion. But I've seen comments as extreme as like people in like, you know, on Reddit commenting that, oh, we should stop ETH2, like mining pools should unite to like stop ETH2. I think that the writing has been on the wall for a while that like mining will go away. And it makes sense, obviously, that miners will, at this point in time, they will want to prevent that. However, like the momentum is definitely on the side of ETH2 here. We have a uh, 5 billion, I think, staked in the deposit contract. We have so many people wanting to, you know, wanting to participate and the chain is already running, right? Like, Sure, a lot of things do depend on ETH1 for moving forward. So for example, once we want to merge the current state of ETH1 into ETH2, there are multiple approaches, but yes, some of them uh, might require a hard fork into ETH1. So, you know, can miners stop that, right? That's a key question. I think that there is a strong opinion that like long-term, the EIP is, is very beneficial to Ethereum as a whole, but short-term profits will be lost. And there's a lot of short-term profits to be made. It really depends. I'm really glad that ETH2 has grown to the level where it's independent chain of miners at this point right now. There's a lot of validators that, you know, are, are not mining pools, like you mentioned, or a new breed of, of consensus. I think once they have a better idea of the fee market on ETH2, I think that will be interesting to them. And that will, a lot of those developments will definitely come this year, right? The only rewards you earn are the APR from validating, right? As there is more information on, you know, how our transaction fee is going to work on ETH2 and how our validator is going to be rewarded for that. That could be an interesting um, way to attract them to, to join in. But I do think that the momentum is on the side of ETH2 happening no matter what. And I think users, developers, DAP developers, DeFi, for example, will really benefit from the scalability. Definitely. Speaking of EIPs and one of the EIPs that you know a lot about, I noticed that in your blog post, you talk a little bit about Ethereum Improvement Proposal 3076, Validator Client Interchange Format. And this is under the topic of how to properly migrate your slashing protection history. So to educate people more on the best slashing prevention tips, can you talk a little bit more about this EIP and about the importance of something like uh, your slashing protection history? Yeah, totally. I, I think it's not like game changing, but what that is, is basically every ETH2 client has its own way of uh, protecting its validators in a very simple way. So as we talked about earlier, like you get slashed if you produce two blocks at the same time, maybe your computer block is really messed up or something like that. So the best we can do to protect you is we keep a small record of the things you've done in the past. So it's like, okay, Christine created a block at, you know, at this time. And then if she tries to do it at the same time again, then uh, database will prevent you from, from doing that action, right? So it's a very simple and like effective way of preventing some, you know, some common problems. And the thing is that, like as mentioned earlier in the podcast, is that we want to really 
go towards more standardization across ETH2 clients. Kind of everyone is in their own in their own world, right? Like you know, the Lighthouse team is doing a lot of great work in in, in Rust programming language. We work in Go. Uh, we have different technology choices and design decisions that we take. But at the end of the day, like we should standardize things, like not like the API between clients. We should standardize the way people can move keys, right? Like there shouldn't be mysticism around how to move from Prism to Lighthouse. It should be fairly straightforward. And that's kind of what this EIP does. It makes it easy for you to migrate your slashing protection history, which is a local database between uh, clients. So you can easily export, like, here's a record of everything all my validators have done. Like, I produce these many blocks, these many attestations and such. Um, and it's a very easy way to export and import them between clients. So, yeah, it's just one more step towards uh, further standardization. It's a net benefit for everyone. Now this sounds like you are trying to encourage people to switch between clients. <laughs> I thought you were going to make uh -oh. it a lot harder. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, yeah, we definitely need to like, you know, keep these standards, right? Like I think people have the choice and like if they have the choice, that's really great. You know, it would suck if like somebody is trapped and they just, they're not a fan of the software and they want to head out, right? And that goes for all the ETH2 clients, right? So that's something that is our duty to do and like we need to do it. But of course we need to keep uh, building good software to encourage people to stay, right? So we only have a few minutes left and I want to kind of look ahead for Prismatic Labs. Uh, we know we have a hard fork, quote unquote, later this summer, uh, which has some efficiency changes for the chain. And then we're even looking at merging ETH1 and ETH2 by the end of the year, but probably sometime in 2022. So what does that look like on the client level? Yeah, sure. there's three things here at play. So you mentioned the hard fork and then the ETH1, ETH2 merge. There's also sharding, which is what was previously called phase one. So we have phase zero proof stake and then we have sharding. So they're honestly really big and uh, kind of scary endeavors, but I'm confident that our team is ready to tackle them. So the first hard fork is very important. So first of all, the slashing penalties are very lenient right now. They will be brought back to the original design. And yeah, a lot of efficiency updates on how the beacon state keeps track of like votes and stuff like that. And a few other proposals in there that would make uh, the clients more robust as the validator size keeps increasing. Every week, like we see so many more people in the queue wanting to validate, which is really amazing. But we need to make sure that the client teams can be fully prepared for that number of validators. So the hard fork is a lot about efficiency, going back to the original design principles of like uh, parameters. The next thing is the ETH1, ETH2 merge. Yes, indeed. So this past uh, week, there was a workshop, an ETH2 workshop with uh, Vitalik, the, ETH, the EF researchers talking to the teams about, look, like here's what's on the roadmap. And, uh, and the next step for you guys and for all of us is to put this into a formal specification and start building it. So the two things are sharding and the ETH1, ETH2 merge. There's been really great work on the ETH1 to ETH2 merge. How, how is that going to work? And, and that's something that definitely will be, you know, will be worked on throughout this year. One that's coming up even sooner is uh, it's sharding. Okay, so cool, we have this proof of stake blockchain, but we need a way to have scalability and to actually have chains that can store transactions and data and accounts and stuff. So sharding is the next big step. Um, and it's very difficult from a implementation standpoint, from a research standpoint, not as much anymore. There's been some really great work done on how it's actually going to look and uh, we just have to build it. Uh, so our team plans to be at the forefront of this. Uh, our teammate Terrence is actually one of the major contributors to the E2 specification. And he's built a lot of this, uh, a lot of the components of sharding already. So yeah, I expect a lot of big things from uh, Prismatic Labs on, on these two efforts. Hopefully there's not too many like crazy overhauls and changes to the code, because I know that was a little bit of an issue getting to the point of phase zero and making phase zero a frozen specification that the specification kept changing for clients. 
Yeah. yeah, totally. That was a huge pain point in the beginning. I think they did a great job because, you know, I'm really happy with what we shipped instead of what would have been shipped like maybe a year ago. So like, seriously, like a lot of really great simplifications, security fixes, like just making it really compact. And I think it, it was painful. It sucked. Like everyone was always asking, like, when is it shipping? And, you know, mm. now, it's, now it's out. So. Well, thank you so much again, Rob, for joining us for today's episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0, for sharing with us all the details about slashing and how people can best protect themselves from slashing. For anybody who does want to reach out to Raul or simply keep up to date about what he and the prison team are working on, you can find him on Twitter. His handle will be found in today's show notes. Also, if you haven't already, subscribe to Christine and I's weekly newsletter, Valid Points. By going to coindesk.com, you can keep up to date with us about Coindesk's staking journey and the ETH2 network in general through our newsletter and this podcast. Will and I will be back next week with some very exciting news. I won't say who or what it is right now, but it'll be a good episode that everybody will want to tune in for. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like answered on our podcast about ETH2 or the Valid Points project, you can connect with us via email at research at coindesk.com or on Twitter at coindeskdata. Join us again next week for Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim and Will Foxley with guest Raul Jordan. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.